What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and I hope you guys are having a wonderful day. This is season 15. Yes, you guys heard me right. It's season 15 of Pariah Nation. And as usual, we're going to be discussing a different set of topics this season, and I'm going to try and make it more scholarly, try to make it, try to get a few more knowledgeable people on here as well. And today we're going to be discussing a topic that I feel has come up countless amounts of times, especially when it comes to the topic of colonization, Africanity. And of course, we're going to be speaking about Islam. I'm Muslim myself, Sunni Muslim, and I've brought two others here with me as well who are Muslim. We're just going to be briefly just telling you from our, our experience, right? And uh, like, you know, how we react to, you know, people who generally they propagate this belief that, you know, Islam is racist and endorses racism and endorses uh, mainly black uh, slavery, like, you know, people, black people being enslaved. So we're going to get into a lot of that today. And uh, as usual, uh, just to the guest, Ismail, would you just like to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about who you are, where you come from and where you got your knowledge from as well? All right, uh, assalamu alaikum. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. So just a bit about me. My name is uh, Ismail, obviously, like he said. Um, I'm actually uh, African-American, uh, third generation Muslim. So my grandfather converted in, I believe, the 1960s or 70s. He was actually originally part of the Nation of Islam. And then, you know, alhamdulillah, he read the Quran. He said, this is not aligned with what Allah is teaching. And so from then on, he became a Sunni Muslim and then started studying the Quran more. And then from he, you know, he married my grandmother. And from that came my father, who's Muslim, alhamdulillah. And then that's how I ended up where I'm at. So alhamdulillah. Um, in terms of my knowledge, most of what I, um, I'd say, because it's a bit of a long story, but essentially I've always been interested in learning about religion. Because of course, like if, if there's a God and there's heaven and there's hell and all of this stuff I believe is true, then I should most likely try to look into it a little bit, know more about it. And ever since when I was in high school, I was very interested in learning about religion. And so from then on, I started uh, going online, listening to different uh, scholars talking about Islam, talking about Islamic history, mainly uh, also in fiqh, which is Islamic law um, and stuff like this. And meanwhile, my dad uh, took me to a, uh, class in my masjid where this Egyptian brother, may Allah bless him, was uh, teaching us Arabic. And so from then on, when I started learning it, I just completely fell in love with the language. You know, it's a very beautiful language, alhamdulillah. Um, it was very easy for me to learn. I pick up languages pretty easily, alhamdulillah. I, I, if I wanted to, if I wasn't so lazy, I could learn quite a few other languages, but I'm at where I'm at now, so alhamdulillah. But um, yeah, that's pretty much all there is to know about me. I uh, recently graduated from university um currently applying for my master's trying to get into uh, data science and analytics so yeah awesome man thank you so much for coming on and um, i'm really appreciating the content please go ahead and follow him on tiktok as well <clears throat> we'll leave all the links and everything towards then and everyone just share their own platforms and yeah mustafa as usual regular like you know he comes onto the show quite often uh, but yep. just tell, for those who don't know you just give a brief introduction all right, assalamu alaikum. My name is Mustafa. Um, I'm a recurring guest on the show. Thanks, Adnan. Um, of course, uh, I'm, I'm black and I'm Muslim. And um, I think growing up, for me, uh, the first time I really 
noticed my blackness and as distinct from um, the label Muslim was reading uh, a book called Destruction of Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. And that specifically was a red pill moment in terms of realizing my place and how contrary to, to what Muslims would want me to believe or, or Christians would want me to believe there's, there's been a, uh, an, an ongoing effort to destroy black culture from, from all sides. But um, to, to tackle the topic of is Islam in itself racist, I think that the argument is a pan-African slash black orientalist argument that we can get into. And yeah, I have my opinions on it as well. Yeah, thank you so, so much, bro. I'm really glad to have you on. And yeah, I mean, we should get straight into it. I mean, I like the way you just talked about how you felt as if your blackness was separate from Islam. And here's the thing, guys, like, <clears throat> I know a lot of Muslims, and this is, I'm really just priming people for this conversation already. It's like, people automatically go to the extent of saying that, oh, the moment you mentioned that you're black, like, you know, oh, Islam doesn't see color, right? But Muslims do. That's what I'll tell you. We are all living in a post-colonial world. And what I'd actually argue is that some, some people have actually internalized that Orientalism and they've internalized that colonization. And they actually end up producing that in the way that they speak, right? And even some people have, I mean, within Islam, it's a bit more complex because you have people who have like, for example, Arab supremacy. So I'd say it's not necessarily that you're seeing white to black racism as much, right? But some people might end up favoring, for example, like white reverts, all these different things. And I think it's very interesting that, um, you know, as, as a black person, it's, it's kind of odd because it's like now getting people from your own community, um, specifically, I'll just state yeah, blatantly, I've seen several hoteps, not necessarily all, but, you know, the, these people who come on and they like, you know, they want to claim everything is black, like, you know, these people are black, that people are black, everything is black history, right? And like, you know, all these, I've basically seen that, right? And unfortunately, a lot of it doesn't have to do with like, you know, well-established historical evidence. So one thing that you actually end up seeing is that these people come for Islam and they usually, they insult and they slander the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. And not only that, they just level so many claims. They take so many hadith out of context. They end up extrapolating that and the behavior of a few Muslims and they make it the norm. And then they somehow embed it in our scripture as if we don't know it ourselves, like, you know, what our own scriptures say, right? I mean, what, what do you think about that, Ismail? Like, I can see you reacting to it. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, I think you might, you might have seen this video that I... Actually, you did. You did. You commented on it. Um, I don't know if you would class Hebrew Israelites as hoteps. I mean, I would. They have the same uh, foundation, you know, claiming something is Black when it's not. But uh, anyways, I made a video where this guy was basically saying that like you were saying, like Arabs are racist, so Islam is racist. I was like, no, doesn't make sense. And then hilariously enough, he was quoting from the Hadith and he quoted the Hadith of Abu Dhar. <laughs> he quoted the Hadith of Abu Dhar and any Muslim knows this Hadith where Abu Dhar, uh, he insulted Bilal ibn Rabah saying, you're the son of a black woman. Yeah, Ibn Sauda. He said, look, see, Abu Dhar was racist. And I'm like, okay. And did you read the rest? <laughs> did you read the rest? <laughs> did you read what happened? <laughs> when uh, 
Bilal came to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then he told him off saying that, you know, you have traces of jahiliya, you have ignorance in you. And the Abu Dhar apologized. Like, <laughs> the hadith itself refutes you. So, yeah. Yeah, no, the thing is, I find it so difficult for people to, to claim. Like, that's literally, if there's any Muslim figure that's been tokenized, unfortunately, so like, obviously, yes, we, we understand Bilal ibn Rabah, radiallahu anhu, has made insane sacrifices for Islam. Like we'll probably never be able to, if we lived like 50, 70, 100 years, I don't think we'll ever be able to reach that level of sacrifice. It's very difficult, right? And we, like, we understand that, uh, that he's done a lot for the religion, but unfortunately people have even tokenized like that story. And like, they just, they, they say that this means that there's no reason in the Muslim community. And that's a separate discussion we'll get into a bit later. But I find it so, so crazy that they go to that or they go to that specific hadith like they don't read the rest what i also see as, as a main point is that we we have people going to wikipedia right so people <laughs> guys please just you know i don't understand why people use wikipedia as a source for finding out about islam even even wiki islam for example <clears throat> that should not be a source that you're going to oh uh, wiki islam that's just that's the worst one it's absolute worst, right? And people take it seriously. That's the issue, right? And I think that, okay, there's, there's a fine line. And I'll state this right now. This is also an issue I think that we also have in the Muslim community, right? I feel like we also haven't gone to the right lengths to expose the racism amongst earlier, like early, early scholars. And there were a few, there were a few, right? I'm not saying this was normative because if it was normative, we'd be having issues today, yep. right? But I'll tell you for a fact, there are some, but albeit a few Muslim scholars who professed and they agreed with things, for example, like the curse of Ham, we'll talk about later on. <clears throat> yep. And I think as Muslims, we also need to like make that clear, but also I think it's a strength of our tradition. that we had major scholars come out and refute that and say that this is not Islam at all. And what's even scarier is that you have some hadith and for those who don't know what hadith are, they're essentially narrations that have been transmitted either from the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him or from notable Islamic figures and they're used as authoritative legislature in Islam essentially right so I think there was even one hadith that was falsely and don't don't misquote me I am saying falsely attributed to one of Islam's greatest scholars Imam Malik rahimahullah right where they tried to make it seem as if um, he was making an inference that black people are alcoholics and lazy right and someone just during that time, just transmitted that hadith, right? With that subconscious mindset, right? That, oh, this is like totally correct, right? But obviously you see what our scholarship later on said, hey, this actually is not authentic, right? But you see how people were like weaving this into their literature to try and like justify racism. That's exactly how cultural cor corruption happens. And also we've been able to guard against that. Now, before we go on, I actually want to just uh, briefly introduce one of our guests that's also managed to join us. Uh, Samantha, could you briefly just tell us a bit about yourself and obviously where you're from and your relationship with the song as well? Hi, Assalamualaikum. Thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm from the US and um, I'm a revert. So been Muslim like 10-ish years or so. Um, but yeah, I think this topic is great. And I think it's interesting that you said the scholars aspect because I have 
heard like this stereotype, unfortunately, from some Muslims that are not black, that they don't think that black Muslims are capable of going to heaven or Jannah because of their blackness. Um, and I read a story one time where a man was in an Arab country and he was, you know how they have those outdoor wudu stations. So he was making wudu outside. And this young, you know, little boy walked past him. He said, what's the point? Why are you making wudu to go pray? It's not going to be accepted. You're not going to go to Jannah. And he's just like, ha ha ha, like laughing about it. And there's these, you know, scholars, I don't know, like who specifically they were, but there were people around that could have corrected this young boy and no one said anything. And if, any, if anything, some people were kind of like laughing it off, like, oh, he's just a kid, you know, just ignore him type thing. So Sadly, I think there are, unfortunately, Black Muslims that are kind of ostracized and made to feel like because they're Black, they don't have a place in Islam and don't even have a place in paradise. So I just wanted to add that. That is so shocking. What? Like, I mean, I've heard like crazy kinds of stories. And guys, I'll, I'll also mention this because I think there's a bit of <clears throat> another back and forth going on between two people <clears throat> on TikTok as well about a comment that was made or something and like, you know, just racism in Islam is now like the center of the topic. <clears throat> One of the main things that uh, people do is that they, in my survey actually that they mentioned is that around 74%, and keep in mind this is a survey of 104 responses of black Muslims, right? From countries like the UK, the US, Norway, UAE, Saudi Arabia, all these different other places, right? Um, and 74% of them said that they feel gaslit when they talk about these issues. It's like someone will hear that story, but they'll say, oh no, but Islam doesn't see color. You know, they try to make it all just like, you know, no, but trust me, some people genuinely did, right? And what's, what's crazy about it is that um, it was readily ac accepted by some cultures, whether it, for example, uh, use it as an insult, right? So like, you know, <clears throat> it would literally be like used as an insult, oh, you, as, as uh, you know, Israel has given that example, that, oh, you son of a black woman, things like that. And very much still in, in these other cultures, you'll see that it exists today. But what, what, do, you, what do you guys think about that story? Because that was crazy. Yeah, I think um, that, that, that was one of the critiques of um, uh, Al-Andalusi's critique of critical race theory. Um, so, so it was that, in general, Desi, Desi or um, Arab Muslims have this paternalistic, um, you know, uh, we know what's best for you. Stop being fixated on, on race attitude whenever someone brings up, you know, real life issues. And it, yeah, I find that troubling. Yeah, I think, sorry, go on, Ismail. Oh, uh, well, just really quickly on the point about uh, what Samantha was talking about with, you know, the kid saying something like black people don't go to gender and stuff like that and all these misconceptions. People might think like, oh, it's just he's just a kid or whatever. But I've seen myself, grown adults have these type of misconceptions. Like someone literally told me, like, oh, you know, don't worry, in Jannah everyone will be white. So I know you're black, but don't worry, everyone will be white. And I'm like, bruh, all of a lie. I'm telling you, that's exactly what he told me. And so, you know, stuff like this does exist. And um, oh, I, forgot what I was gonna say something about like the, no, yes, I remember. With the gaslighting aspect, I hear a lot of Muslims in my masjid, they'll say stuff like, you know, why do you refer to yourself as black? Why do you refer to yourself as this? 
Like we're all just Muslim. Like this is the problem. I hate that. That's this skin color or that skin color. I'm like, you can say that, but th this is where the problem begins. Because when when I say that, for example, someone's doing something to, something to me because I'm black, then they'll say, oh, it's not because of that. Like we don't see color, we don't see race. It's extremely common. Like this whole we don't see color thing, it never works, and it's not real. But anyways, can continue. You know what's crazy though, <clears throat> and what here's why I'll tell you we don't see color as a microaggression for me. It's because if you don't see color, you don't see the capacity for me as a black person to be oppressed, simple as, right? <clears throat> because I for sure experience it, the way people make offhanded comments because of the color of my skin and all these different things that people experience. <clears throat> In my survey, if I read these things out to you guys, it's like, it's so, so disgusting. Like people, as I said, refusing to pray next to other people and like it's for no suitable reason right people calling each other abid it's like i think there's also like you know other people making jokes about you know that word and how it's been used towards black people and these things just aren't funny so when you're telling me you don't see color you're also refusing to see the functions or how oppression oppression like functions towards me and i think it's such a major issue such a big gaslighting point yes we understand that we as Muslims, like we're not supposed to use race as something that we see as superior or whatever. But if they're going to go like this, then we should also abolish culture, right? In that case, it's like, oh, don't, don't talk about your Desi culture. Don't talk about this, it's Islam only. Right? You have to realize that we're multifaceted beings. And yes, these are key parts of our society and, our, uh, and the way we function. So for you to just disregard it, and it's always race, by the way, it's never anything else. It's never nationalism. Oh, it's never, oh, you're from here, you know, no, it's never about that, right? Well, very few, uh, very, very few of the times it's, it's about that. It's meaning that they want to get rid of this race element because they also don't want to subconsciously accept responsibility or complicity in that system. Just to add on to that, Adnan, I think it's a clear extension of anti-Black racism, you know, because we criticize the right when they say, oh, um, all lives matter or you know some of the, some of these uh, talking points, but saying, "Oh, the, we're all one ummah" is literally right-wing talking points, but in Islamic characteristics, so they they're using it to to uh, silence or you know avert from the actual issue at hand, which is anti-black racism. They're not using it in good faith. So, like, okay, sure, we're all one ummah, but that's an ideal, you know. It, we're one in concept, but not in reality. In reality, there's disparities. In reality, there's racism. In reality, there's there's stuff that we have to rectify. And them using the using these arguments isn't helpful. And uh, another thing I wanted to just add, because we want to, I want to go back to like, like how the like what happened in Islamic history, like with the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and the Sahaba and all of them, just to show that this this whole thing of like. One ummah. Yes, we're one ummah. The Prophet Muhammad said that the ummah, the Muslim nation, is like one body. We're all together. We're all, it doesn't matter where we're from, we should all be together. Obviously, we unite upon Islam. But that doesn't mean that, like you guys are saying, that it doesn't mean like we don't acknowledge that we're we have our own problems with our own communities and the cultures that we come from, that some cultures oppress others, some of them look down upon others. I mean, imagine like just think about the fact that the Prophet Muhammad, the Ummah at that time when the Prophet Muhammad was alive, they had they didn't just say, oh, we're just one ummah. They had different tribes. There was the Quraysh, 
there was the Aus, there was a Khazraj, and they acknowledged that, you know, they had differences amongst them. The thing is, you can acknowledge these differences while still not oppressing each other. You can acknowledge that, you know, there's a history behind a certain group of people without, you know, I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly, but I think you guys get what I'm saying, the, the essence of it. Like, yeah. this whole thing of like, you know, you just erase culture, just ignore it, it doesn't matter, it's all irrelevant, we're all just Muslims and that's it. It's, that's a very idealistic way of looking at it. That didn't even exist in the Prophet Muhammad's time, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that's my point, basically. That didn't even exist back then, so how is it gonna exist now? So. Yeah. I, I totally understand that. And I even just want to perhaps just extrapolate and like lead back to the topic. <clears throat> also going to be focusing mainly on like, you know, uh, those black black orientalist critiques, uh, very false ones, may I add, uh, towards Islam. So they take examples like this and they try and make it wholesale, right? And for example, they try to superimpose, uh, I, I'd say what a, a hyperactive race narrative onto Islamic history even though that's clearly like untrue. And we're probably going to get into this a bit later, um, but we might also just, we can also just go through this now, right? That people take these examples is that, and they try to like make it seem as if that's what Islam scriptures endorse. But as we've mentioned, like the one of the first times in history, if not the first blatant critique of racism and like, you know, just blatant statements against racism came from the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? And that was in the last sermon, you know, no white is greater than a black person uh, and no Arab is greater than a non-Arab, right? So these are all important points and we already have them. And that hadith as we mentioned is sahih. Like there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing that anyone can say, like unless you wanna question the entire hadith tradition, which is like a separate topic for another day. Um, but you can't really question that ruling, right? And now perhaps um, we can actually move into like how Islam spread into Africa. This is a topic that I've talked about before. Right. But a lot of people actually make it seem this way. And like, this is unfortunate that a lot of people generally don't know this, but they try to conflate between the Arab expansions during, especially during the Rashidun period. And they try to conflate that with European imperialism. Hey guys, I just want to add a quick caveat over here when I'm talking about North African history. I'm not making the point that all of Islamic history in North Africa was flowery and it was, you know, it was all great and everything. Uh, I do recognize that Islamic history is vast and that means that there were many rulers that came in succession to each other and some were definitely tyrants, some definitely oppressed people. But number one, this is not in line with Islam. And number two, it's also ahistorical for people to go to the other extreme and claim that this was the only thing that you can be able to point towards when it comes to the Arab expansions. And in that sense, like if you look at authors, as I've mentioned, Thomas Walker Arnold, Bernard Lewis, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, uh, Mariah Monoko, all these different other scholars uh, have pushed a narrative of tolerance, which seems to be, in my opinion, the most correct uh, opinion when it comes to viewing Islamic history in general, especially whether it's in North Africa, East Africa, uh, West Africa as well. Um, and yes, this is definitely something if you want to talk uh, more about, you can message me, but I'm in no way, shape or form trying to discount any of the oppression that happened during those periods. Thank you. This is a fatal mistake. Like even from a historical perspective, this is a fatal mistake, right? Because the motives were different and the context were also different. 
So I'll just briefly go into just explain why they are different. And then perhaps any of you can also add from your own historical uh, perspectives uh, or just if you can relate anything to it. But one of the main issues that I tell people is that, you know, when people say, oh, you know, the Arabs also colonized North Africa. First of all, who was North Africa under in terms of governance before the Arabs? It was the Byzantine Empire, basically the Romans, right? And the Romans had already gotten place like Egypt for quite a considerable amount of time. Egypt was also going in, like literally changing hands, right, between different empires. So now, obviously, when the Romans and the Muslims had beef, specifically at the Battle of Tabuk, I highly suggest that you research the Battle of Tabuk, where the Muslims sent a messenger to the Romans, an ambassador, the modern day equivalent of an ambassador, and they killed that ambassador. That's a, that's a declaration of war, right? And if you want to look at the following battles between the Romans and the Muslims, I believe those two, Right? And you can correct, correct me if I'm wrong. There might have even been more like later on. But from that, that was basically the starting point of aggression between these two groups. So that is what actually caused uh, Abu Bakr anhu and Omar anhu to preemptively attack the Roman Empire right? and actually go full scale you know, war. Because they had, they had basically declared war in the first place. So in terms of actually attacking the Romans, that's exactly what happened. And Amr ibn al-As went all the way through Egypt, and I believe it was until Libya as well, right? And obviously, yeah, we can talk about uh, tolerance and like, you know, many scholars have actually come out and said that throughout generally, and I'm putting a huge generally over here because we do realize that there are exceptions to this rule, but generally Islam and Muslims, like we've been tolerant towards other faiths, especially in places like Andalus and obviously in Egypt, even in the Levant uh, and places like Jerusalem, for example. Uh, but yeah, I think that's, that's something we really need to differentiate because if you compare that to European imperialism, you're looking at an entire continent that came together and said, hey, listen, we're done invading each other and we need more resources, right? And you know, in the rise of monopolies, the fact that you can feel a shortage of raw materials more under these monopolies, they decided that they're going to come to Africa for the main reason of extracting resources and not just that, but subjugating the people, right? Whereas actually under the Muslims, you would actually be, uh, you'd come under a different status called dhimmi or protected people. And that's a whole different discussion for another day, but you gain similar protections to a Muslim citizen and you could practice your own religion, etc. But yeah, what do you guys have to say about um, specifically the conflation between European colonialism and uh, the Arab expansion? Uh, just really quickly, because I think you uh, pretty much laid everything pretty clearly, but just to go further into it, when um, you know the Khulafa al-Rashidun, for example, or many of the Muslim empires that conquered other places or they took them over, um, the native citizens of those places, like let's say, for example, Egypt, they would conquer Egypt and you know the majority of people there are Coptic and then the rest are Arab Muslims, okay? Like you were saying, they'd come onto the status of a dhimmi. So they're an actual citizen, okay? They have rights. You can't you know take their property. You can't be unjust to them. You can't just kill them. You can't enslave them. You can't do anything. They have rights. They're citizens. They pay taxes. They're like everybody else. Of course, there's minor differences, but essentially, they're, they're treated like human beings. Whereas I'm pretty sure we all know with European colonialism, that was not the case. 
the Europeans colonizing these places saw themselves as higher, their culture as higher and above um, the cultures that they conquered. Whereas the Muslims, generally speaking, because of course there's exceptions, they would actually adopt the cultures of the places that they conquered many, many times. And there would be intermixing. So that's why a lot of uh, these places now, like in the Middle East and in North Africa, they speak Arabic. It's because over time they intermixed, you know, for example, like the Amazigh culture, the Arab culture, and there's many things. There's, like I said, there's obviously like exceptions here and there, but generally the cultures would just, would just naturally mix. It wouldn't be one culture coming and annihilating and destroying the entire history of another culture. So that's one difference I would say, or one major difference. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with both of you guys. One thing that is important to note is that historically, um, Muslim culture has been um, the bastion of tolerance of, you know, uh, quote unquote, liberal values that seem to be lost on us today. But um, th this argument that we can compare the two is uh, Pan-African slash Black nationalist argument of, of um, being against the Abrahamic faith traditions of old Christianity uh, subjugated uh, Africans here, Islam did the same. I think it's, it, you can't compare the two like uh, Adnan and Ismail pointed out. So to be honest, I feel like I need to learn more about what happened with the Arab expansion and stuff like that. So I can't really comment on that, but I do know that, um, how the Nubians are treated in Egypt is very similar to how, um, you know, Black Muslims might be treated in like the UK or in America. So I do think that like there's something we should like, it, that's not talked about enough, the anti-Blackness in Saudi and um, Libya. I mean, they were enslaving um, African migrants over there. And even in Egypt, I myself didn't know this, there are a lot of um, Ethiopian and Eritrean immigrants that do go to, to Egypt and, you know, they're being called Abid and they work as, um, you know, like maids or like domestic workers for Egyptian families. And then they're still facing, like, you know what I mean? Like they, they're coming to this country hoping for a better life because they're fleeing violence in their own country and then experiencing the racism and, you know, this country like Egypt. So I think, again, I can't comment on like the history, but I do know current times, like even what um, you were saying before about refusing to pray next to someone because they're black. Um, something I read from some of the Egyptians themselves that were saying that they know other Egyptians that refuse to shake um, a black person's hand. So you can see even that like, to some of them, it's like almost like a disease. Like, oh, if I touch you, like it, it, she compared it basically to like leprosy, you know, like we are afraid to touch someone because you like, you almost feel like you're gonna contract something or that the person is sick themselves. So um, I don't know. I just think that there is stuff going on there that's not really discussed. Um, I, I, I can only speak on Egypt because I haven't really taught or researched about the other countries, but there's still heavily an anti-blackness in these regions. Yeah, perhaps I'll even go as far as <clears throat> saying that, yes, there was racism that was prevalent, not necessarily prevalent, it was present in the Muslim world, 
right, um, throughout history, just as it is in many places around the world. But I'd even, I'd even go as far as saying that this, this form of racism is actually a product of, of colonialism in terms of like how it's, it's become prevalent, right? Because if you look at the, the shifting attitudes, people giving certain resources, like resources were shifted around based on racial superiority. Just for example, like the way they saw the Arabs as more superior compared to, um, you know, certain Africans, and they would see North Africans specifically, they wouldn't see them as African. And this is why we have a lot of uh, denial of Africanity from uh, different aspects, not necessarily all North Africans, but some North Africans negate their Africanity because of this main reason. So I'd, I'd even say on that basis, it, it's even like, you know, you can clearly see the hand of colonialism coming to corrupt scripture, right? And when people try and argue this, it gets so, it gets so frustrating to me because I'm just telling people, can you really not separate between the people or the deviance of the religion and the religion itself? Like, I'm telling you literally, like they'll, they'll come and say, like, if those people want to come and tell me that Islam endorses racism, they should tell me that Islam also endorses alcohol and that Islam also endorses premarital sex. Because there's Muslims that have done it, right? Specifically in the West, right? Drinking, you know, sex before marriage, all these different things, right? And you're going to now tell me that Islam endorses that, even though these verses that, that even tell us don't even go near those activities, right? Like the, the entire methodology for me is just corrupted. And even here's, here's one crazy story. <laughs> this guy came onto my TikTok or was in my Instagram or something. And, you know, he said, you know, it's just very, very odd the way he was like speaking to me on that chat. It's like, you know, you know, you should see, brother, there's just a few things over here. You have to see that there's an agenda. These Arabs will never see you the same. They'll see you as an Abid and these, uh, you know, these other people, whether it's Christianity or Islam, they all see you as a black man and they don't see you as a human being. And like, this is generally how those people think, right? It is so narrow-minded, right? That they won't even go to the scripture to see what the scripture says, right? And then also like, before we move on, because I'd wanted us to address this as well, I like the way you talked about, Samantha brought up the very pertinent topic of like, you know, the Arab enslavement and how this has been linked to Islam. And there's even one, one YouTuber, right? Like it's absolutely ahistorical what he did and it's totally false. Trying to make it seem as if Islam by and large and like endorsed the Arab slave trade. Like what are, what are your thoughts on that first of all? Uh, I was just going to talk on um, Samantha's point because uh, I think it's important not to like um, to, to make a distinction that uh, we acknowledge that we're not saying that racism wasn't prevalent in these uh, societies, um, not just anti-black racism. Um, for example, in the Umayyad, the conflict between the, the Berbers and, and, and the Arabs and the, it, during the Abbasid period, the, the anti-blackness in, in leading to the Zend rebellion, leading to the, the, the biggest slave rebellion in, in human history. But um, fast forward to, to, uh, to, to uh, today, we see large amount of anti-blackness across the Arab world, but that's not indicative of, of anything to do with Islam. It's, in, it's indicative of poverty, it's indicative of all, all, of, the, uh, all of the repercussions of colonialism and imperialism. Um, but that, that's my point. And uh, to touch on the whole aspect of the Arab slave trade and 
um, how if the Islam justifies us or not. Um, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in a hadith said very clearly. This is the literal words, by the way, or in English, translated in English. Um, anyone who takes a free person and enslaves them, Allah will be their opponent on the day of judgment. I mean, that seems pretty clear to me. That's how. What other way can you describe what the Arabs did in the slave trade to uh, people, especially in uh, East Africa? Um, which is an interesting point. Uh, one of the another one of the phrases that Arabs or like a lot of Arabs say as a insult to black people, of course, there's Abid, which everyone knows. There's also Zenji. And I actually got called this once. Um, it's an interesting story, but I'll leave it for later. Um, no, Zenji, please, please do tell us if, you, if you're comfortable, of course. Uh, I'll, I'll say it now then. So basically, uh, I was hanging out with my friend from Jordan, right? And me and him are very cool. He's not racist in the slightest, really chill. But one of his, one of his cousins came from Jordan. He didn't speak that much English. And so we were just hanging out, just goofing off or whatever. We were recording each other on Snapchat, just having a good time, just laughing. And uh, he recorded me, the cousin of my friend, recorded me and said, ya zinji, ya zinji. And he didn't think I knew what, I, he didn't think I speak Arabic. He didn't think that I knew Arabic. And I said something to him, I forgot what I said, but it wasn't nice in Arabic. <laughs> and then he, received, he said, no, no, no. I like black people, I'm not racist. I wish I was black. I was like, Bro, get your cousin, man. Like, this is ridiculous. And needless to say, I never saw him after that. Alhamdulillah. But um, yeah. Anyways, the term Zenji, it actually refers to uh, Zangibar or Zanzibar, like the region in East Africa. So that's where they got it from. So it's another way of saying slave, because that's where they would mainly enslave people. So uh, yeah, but anyways, what I was saying uh, essentially was that what the Arabs did in this, in this region of the world and in many other places, is exactly that, taking people who you're not at war with, because essentially in Islam, the only way you can do quote unquote, quote unquote slavery or taking somebody and making them serve you is as a prisoner of war. So someone's coming to fight you, right? They're coming to kill you, right? Like if they win, they're gonna kill you and your family and everything. And they surrender like, okay, we're, we're, we're losing, we're finished, we'll stop. They're alive and you take them as a prisoner. That's the only way. If they're just sitting, doing nothing, like mo what, what these pe tribes and different people in Africa were doing, in Zanzibar and all these places, they're not doing anything to you. They're free. They, you can't harm them. But, and that's what these Arab people did. So this is clearly against Islam. And uh, from, from my knowledge, I'm not sure if the Arabs even used Islam to justify it. They might have just used a loose, like, okay, the Prophet Muhammad had prisoners of war or something like that. But specifically what they're doing and specifically targeting African people from my knowledge and you are more knowledgeable about history so maybe you could expand upon that but they didn't even really use it as like we're enslaving them because they're they're black and Islam tells us to do that it was more of just their own self-interest like okay here's people we can we come from a powerful civilization let's make them slaves that's mostly where it came from so maybe you could expand upon that yeah, that's, that's actually quite factual. <clears throat> and if anyone wants to speak about the Islamic system of Riq or the prisoners of war, um, just, yeah, I highly recommend a lecture by Abdullah Al-Andalusi, and he speaks on that matter in a very particular way and uh, breaks it down quite easily. Also, I've mentioned an article in one of my comments in my previous video uh, on TikTok. There's an article written by Abu Amina Elias, and uh, it talks about uh, what Islam has to say about uh, prisoners of war. 
And obviously, keep in, keep in mind, this war has to be just as well by Islamic standards. And usually, this actually means um, either self-defense or retaliatory self-defense, right? Where you actually preemptively attack it because you know about threats that's about to happen, right? But I'm not a scholar, <laughs> so don't necessarily take my definition of, uh, you know, a just war from Islam. But speaking of what, hap what happened in East Africa as well, Yes, there's so many. I mean, it's so clear. And actually, the hadith that you're talking about, for anyone who wants the reference for that hadith, just go to Sahih al-Bukhari, hadith number 2114, and that's what you'll find, right? And anyone who enslaves a free person, the prayer will not be heard. That's very key. And I need people to remember that because a lot of people try and make it seem that they try to conflate between Islam and the Arab enslavement of East Africans, specifically Bantu East Africans. Right? This is manifestly false. Additionally, people were being killed and all these different things. And um, the thing is, I'm not sure if this one is Sahih, right? But I think that they connected, one of the authors collected it from one of the authentic books. I'll have to double check this. Again, do not quote me just yet, but you'll have to do your own research on this. Uh, but I think there was a tale of a man who actually killed a prisoner of war, right? Who was under his guardianship, right? And he had essentially killed the prisoner of war and the Prophet peace be upon him, ordered him to be lashed a hundred times and to be exiled, right? Meanwhile, in, um, as you said, like, you know, uh, when people also speak of slavery, by the way, and like, you know, what, what happened in East Africa, da, 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 they always speak and they try to make it seem as if uh, that transatlantic slave trade was like, that's how it was everywhere, right? Or like, you know, when you're treating prisoner, prisoners of war, they try to conflate between the two, right? But essentially what you're seeing is that in the Arab slave trade, people are being killed, even babies, like there's very, very tragic and very graphic things that they speak about, you know, babies' heads being bashed in. Even in Zanzibar, by the way, if you go there, you'll actually see that the plantations where they used to plant cloves. And people used to be worked there for like hours, like literally sweating, sweating, all these different things. People would be beaten, people would be lashed. This is nowhere for this in Islam. Like there's nowhere, like this is, there's nowhere that this is actually okay. And the same thing for uh, what's called the Barbary slave trade. I don't like to use the word Barbary, but you know, that's what it's called in the historical literature. And that's the exact same thing. You can't be as enslaving free people and then just going to trade them. We also have um, an Australian um, explorer or like, you know, just traveler who went on an Ottoman expedition. And I believe, I can't remember which country it was in. I can't, if it was Sudan or something, I can't remember. But in that particular expedition, like they, they literally just, people were literally killing themselves to prevent themselves being enslaved, right? And obviously because it was like, you know, a random attack, right? Even though these people have done nothing to you. So obviously for those who want that specific context, and you're asking the question of, does Islam endorse the Arab slave trade? By and large, the answer is no, right? And you can't, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a tired claim for people to keep bringing this up and trying to associate it with Islam. It's really, really, I don't know how, how much better to get that across. Did Samantha or Mustafa, did you guys want to say something? Yeah, um, it's horrifying what you're saying, but um, I think the only Arab leader who's actually condemned this or apologized for the Arab slave trade is, is uh, Muammar Gaddafi. But um, to that point, I think for the most part of the Western world, um, I'm generalizing here, but has come to terms or has uh, rejected it and then... Um, uh, they were the first to push the Arab world into um, abolishing slavery. So there are, there are, I know for the most part, we're defending 
this this uh, the notion of 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 Muslimness and Arabness, but there are points in which we can learn and adapt uh, some of the values that are here in the West uh, to to the Arab world. In my opinion, what do you guys think? Depends what you mean by by which values, because <laughs> as usual, I usually just say like um, I think the main thing is just to anchor ourselves in in what Islam has been able to provide us with, and this is like the main thing that we're talking about. I think that Islam just came as a package. So, I mean, you'd have to really be a bit more specific. Sure, but <laughs> um, just to counteract that point, if we look at the Muslim world today it's far removed from what the ideal of what a Muslim should be or an ideal Islamic society should be, right? And uh, I'm, I'm not saying that some of these, um, some of these foreign values are going to be uh, adopted and, and, you know, imposed on people, but they're going to sprout out like naturally, like uh, stuff like uh, environmental ethics or stuff like, uh, uh, you know, anti-racist movements. So uh, I think it's um, I, th- I think it's uh, an important point to note, but I-, I don't want it to be seen as an, as a you know neo-colonial or you know orientalist approach, rather than a natural reckoning of the Muslim world saying, okay, hold on, we want to move away from these bad ideas and bad uh, attitudes. Yeah, just before Samantha speaks, I just want to perhaps. Um, say that we don't necessarily need to look to the West. I think that it's more like we need to revitalize what was done by previous scholars. Simple as, right? And if anything, I can just read, um, very quickly read the introduction. And actually it was Mustafa that introduced me to this book in the first place. I'm just going to briefly try and read to you the introduction of this book that was written by a scholar named Ibn al-Jawzi and it's called The Virtues of Blacks and Abyssinians. And yeah, it's a very powerful starting, right? But I think we just need to revitalize this, right? Uh, and we need to like sort of bring this back. Because, 100%. Yeah, let me actually just check for it. Um, can't really find it at the moment. Yeah, but essentially, yeah, what we need to do is we need to revitalize it because scholars wrote books that were essentially just saying that racism is, has nothing to do with Islam. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, sorry for getting you out then, yeah, but... Cool. Um, the difference between uh, our morality uh, coming via divine command or us reasoning our way out of ignorance, right? So um, if there is uh, a rebirth of reason in uh, the Muslim world, then maybe some of these ideas will, will go away instead of relying on the divine command theory and saying, okay, well, Islam tells us to not to do this, therefore we won't do it. How about we don't do the, this based on the fact that it's uh, immoral, you know? Yeah, no, I'd say they're very much closely tied together because Islam is against racism. So I think the bigger question we should also be asking is why is racism continuing to proliferate around our, our community, specifically, as we've mentioned, uh, within Arab and Desi communities and even other communities outside of that? And I mean, actually, uh, Samantha, perhaps would you like to like weigh in on like your experience? Because we're talking about you know racism within the community. Um, you obviously come from a mixed background, but how how has that been for you? Like how have people reacted uh, to that, or like how have you uh, been treated as uh, someone who's a revert to the religion? Especially obviously the fact that you're mixed race. 
And um, how do you think that that impacts like, you know, this, or, or like that's going to impact what we decide to do in terms of revitalizing the Muslim community and uh, actually having these anti-racist movements come up within our community as well? Yeah, thank you for asking. I just wanted to quick mention that like, um, I know Mustafa had said like, that there's the difference between like, you know, conflating like Islam to like the anti-blackness in the Arab world. But I definitely feel like what we don't also talk about sometimes is like, just like there's white supremacy, there's obviously Arab supremacy. So um, it's a lot harder because there, there are not as many Arabs here in America. But if you go to an Arab country, obviously it's a lot more like visible because I've heard of stories of my Black friends going to Arab countries and experiencing microaggressions. And sometimes they're treated better just solely on the fact that they're American, not even because they're Black, because they get treated weirdly because they're Black, but then there's also a level of respect because they're American. And I think in some ways, the Muslims back then with the whole like slave trade and stuff like that, I still think they needed time to like get into Islam. You know what I mean? Because it took like years for them to, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Umar, like the um, Prophet son's companion, it took him four years to like fully start practicing Islam because he would take a verse and then like implement it. And so I feel like it just took them, There's there was still that pride aspect within the like Arab Muslims back then. Like they still had this pride of like, okay, I'm I like I'm Arab first still and so I think you know outside of the companions it took a long time for people to really fully start practicing Islam and take away these negative like traditions that they had because like the burying of the children or the girl children and trying to like get out of that like sexism and the racism like it just took a long time for them to get out of that but also in the same sense I think some of them within the Sahaba were a little bit advanced even more so than we are today because I still see like this whole like oh um, as an Arab I wouldn't marry a black person but then I remember reading about the Prophet his adopted mother or I can't remember who she was but she was an African woman who helped raise him and she had married an Arab um, Sahaba and they had children and it wasn't usually a big deal for them to mix at that time, but yet we still see that today. So it's almost like they were somewhat advanced in terms of their Islamness, but that was the Sahaba and they were still struggling obviously to leave behind things like alcoholism, sexism, racism. And then still today, people are still struggling with that today. So, I mean, there's obviously like Arabs that are, like I have Arab friends that are like open-minded and things like that, but then there's still a vast majority of them who still see us as inferior. And I always try to equate that nothing to do with Islam, but just their superiority complex and thinking that pride wise that they are better than anyone else when they're really not. And um, I think that it's different when like a black person like takes on this like, you know, pro blackness sort of aspect because they're doing it to save themselves from the superiority and racism that um, these other like like everyone thinks that most Muslims are Arab when that's, you know, not even true. It's like Indonesian has the highest amount of Muslims. But um, going back to your point about being mixed and being a revert, it's definitely a struggle. And I have noticed within my own family that 
they struggle with the prejudice of, well, we don't want to marry anyone else except because my my mother's side is Oromo. So I like grew up with my grandma being like pushing, like, like trying to push me to be more Oromo than be Latina. And so it was it was definitely hard because they want you to. And then I see why, because sometimes they're prejudiced towards other African <laughs> groups. Like they'll be like, oh, Somalis are this way and Arabs are this way and Pakistanis are this way. So, I mean, there's prejudice even with communities that experience oppression. But I always think, again, that's because we were trying to protect ourselves from the racism, from these other groups of people. But it, it is a struggle sometimes because, again, I think a lot of sometimes people have this stereotype that you can't be Black and Muslim. And like they think like Arabs are only <laughs> the only people that can be Muslim. So a lot of times people have mistaken me for Arab or when I tell them where I come from, they're like, oh, you're not Muslim, even though I fully have hijab on, fully look like a Muslim. But they're like, oh, you must not be a Muslim because you're from these two communities that they don't see often that are Muslim. So it is a struggle sometimes to be accepted also as a revert because I think sometimes there's just a lot of judgment when it comes to how you practice Islam and like, oh, like, I don't know, I just sometimes I think they're just way too strict in how they practice the deen and it, it it's very difficult because then sometimes you're called like liberal if you're like into politics and you talk about like women's rights and thing when you talk about racism, because I think going back to your point before, when you say you're black and Muslim, people are like, well, you're just Muslim, you're Muslim first. And it's like, yes, but at the same time, I can't erase my skin color when I go out into society and they're going to look at me a certain way. Because I had seen a post on Instagram where they highlighted some black Muslim women. And then a lot of the comments were like, there's no black or white or anything in Islam. And I had like said things like, well, if that were the case, why did Allah create different nations for us to get to know each other? Why did the Prophet say in his last speech, no white or Arab or non-Arab is, um, you know, different or superior over the one, uh, one another? Obviously, he knew that there was different skin colors. Obviously, he brought up women's rights and racism specifically in that last speech because he knew that it would be a problem. And people are still failing to even understand that, that even though we're, you know, quote unquote, one ummah, we're not being we're not being respectful of each other's differences. So, yes, obviously, I'm Muslim first, but I cannot race the fact that I'm black and people are going to look at me as a black person or as a mixed race person, however they perceive me. So, yeah, that's what that's what I wanted to say. No, thank you so much, because I think that point is actually probably one of, I think it's, I never really saw it from that angle, but I had a very interesting conversation with someone in my comments a couple of months ago that talked about how, oh, you have to give up your Africanity in order to be a Muslim. And I'm like, no. <laughs> it's like, obviously there's certain elements of culture. This is how Islam works. Islam is essentially a sieve. You have things that are permissible and things that are prohibited. Regardless of your culture, right? Your culture goes through the sieve and whatever comes out, right, that shows that you can practice Islam within certain parameters and still be able to keep your culture. For example, like when people tell us that, I think I saw another video that said like, you can't wear like a turban if you're not from this specific place, right? <laughs> but they also forget. <laughs> like You, you know, can't wear like, what? You can't wear like a specific like turban or like, you know, oh. you know the, yeah, the specific turban uh, in a certain way, if you're not from certain places. And I'm just like, 
Um, they've also forgotten that there are Muslims in Central Africa that actually dress like that. And in West Africa, specifically during the Mali Empire, the Song Songhai Empire as well. And also, as I said, Kanemburnu, right? So all of these different people have their own cultures and they can even be able to practice it. Let me also give you another example. The Swahili people, right? When we're talking about how Islam spread to the rest of Africa, it was, honestly speaking, it was during, like, it was mainly through trade. Like, that's the main thing. It's like, if you look at uh, it statistically, I'd say that it's actually quite rare for this idea of, oh, mass forced conversions. Like, that's just not a thing that you're going to be able to see if you look into African history, like on mass. Like I'm talking about a large period of time and a large amount of conversions. If you look at the Malia Empire, Muslims were going there as early as the, uh, like, you know, the time of Ghana, right? You know, the Ghana Empire. And they had their own specific town. Um, if you look at Kumbisale, for example, there was like, you know, a town for Muslims. And then there was also a town for the local people there. If you read a book called African Civilizations by Graham Connor, it also mentions that in some of these areas, they had other different, uh, you know, graves, like they were different, they're marked differently, and they weren't really buried in the same way a Muslim would be buried. That obviously implies that people were allowed to have their own forms of burials, right, and to practice their own religion specifically. Even in Kanemborno, where they were actually majority Muslim, right, there were still other people who practiced their own religion. In the Malian Empire, although obviously this is not allowed, but it just shows you how people try to like interweave things into Islam, or tried to also like, you know, um, have their own sect and all that different stuff. There were some people um, in the Malian empire who were still practicing their own religion, but some obviously cop, some like I'd say half converted, which is obviously allowed, but like there was also people who were like on the religion, mainly the students of the University of Timbuktu. But one thing I want to address mainly as well, because I'm talking about culture, is people think that Islam is an Arab religion, and I've never heard anything more false, right? And people who say this have a very, very slight understanding. It's a very meek understanding of the Islamic tradition. And I remember talking to someone about this, right? And I've had this conversation, I think, three times. That oh, why does the Quran come down in Arabic? I'm like, oh, my goodness, right? The Quran gives us an answer. If you go to Surah Yusuf, uh, verse number two, it says, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, inna anzalnahu Qur'anan arabiyan yeah, so that you can understand, right? So send down this Quran in Arabic so that the Arabs could understand. What other language is it going to be sent down in, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then also in this other scripture, we literally believe in other scriptures, for example. Uh, and yeah, we're not saying like as they are today, we do believe that previous scriptures were corrupted. But we believe in the, the scores of Noah, peace be upon him. We believe in the scriptures that were sent to Ibrahim, alayhi salam, right? Or Abraham, peace be upon him. We also believe in the Injil, which we believe is the uncorrupted form of the Bible, right? And these are texts that were also re revealed, as far as we know, and Allah knows best, in different languages, right? So when people tell me that, it's like, you don't need to be an Arab to be a Muslim. And unfortunately, some Arab Muslims have also taken this, right? And they're like, oh, we brought you Islam, right? <laughs> and they come in with this superiority complex of, well, the Quran was revealed to us. How special are we? Like this pride, there's no, there's nowhere, like you know that you can find this in the Islamic tradition. If you want to look at scholarship, by the way, right, there are numerous African scholars, right, that have actually caused Islam. They're they're responsible for Islam being spread. If you look at the Somali scholarship, right, especially East, like East African scholarship, I can tell you the main reason why the Shafi'i school of like you know thought, the Madhab, right, is practiced in East Africa is because of those scholars. 
like without them there would be no like islam like in east africa as we know it today like without their work there would have been no islam right the same thing for the traders etc et the swahili people those are the people who actually revitalized islam because you can bring islam to a place and people can also leave islam in that same place right so i think it's really really toxic if you ask me about you know this this concept that oh you need to become more arab the more arab that you are the more muslim that you are um just really quickly uh, you were talking about the book by uh, ibn al-jawzi right yeah i i wanted to uh, say what the actual i don't know if this is the introduction but i i read a lot of it and i know that he basically explains why he wrote the book he wrote it because he was uh I don't know where he I don't know where he was exactly but he saw a group of uh Habasha like Ethiopian Abyssinian people and they were basically I guess you could say self-hating themselves because of their skin color because they were black and because of this Ibn Jozi wrote this entire book to basically for for, the, for them but for black people in general to show that Islam has nothing against them be what I'm saying oh you got it right there yep yeah. So that was the whole reason. It's very interesting, and this is like a scholar from I don't know if the correct term would be medieval times, but definitely not contemporary at all. Like very old scholar. Yeah, and he wrote a book like this. So I, I believe he was in Iraq, right? Something like that, awesome. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was. It was uh, uh, during the Abbasid period. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, essentially. And, and I think it was uh, after the the Zand Rebellion. I, so I there's a lot of, was after, yeah. Really? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, turmoil and conflict and you know uh race relations weren't the best. Mm. So it was a response. Yeah, because yeah, okay. I think what was also happening there was like, you know, and also let me just get this straight, right? Even even in Arab slavery, for example, if you look at the Arab slave system, right? If you look at the way it was structured, it was very different to the transatlantic slave trade there was no specific thing like oh you know we're going to specifically get black people all kinds of people of all kinds of shades were essentially taken right and you can easily see this in eastern europe for example right certain people were enslaved from those areas same thing from the mediterraneans from north africa from east africa right so when people tried to make it seem as if it was racialized and that it was some that specifically targeted black people that's also just manifestly false and also since we're on the topic of scholarship right i really need to make this point clear and i hope i won't take too long but i'm just going to go through a few scholars and what they've said for example uh about the curse of ham i mentioned this in my video but i'm also going to go into like more depth um about like you know what these scholars said and like this is something that as muslims especially as black muslims we should really be proud of right there it just shows how robust our scholarship is and how reliable it has been like in terms of uh, the ijma or like you know the consensus right you know it's been very strong and it's also been vehemently against racism so obviously i mentioned al-jahiz first right and um yes i know he's a mutazili right and of course like you know mutazili the theology isn't really uh, it's not really normative to what most muslim scholars say so just keep that in mind right but he stated this right and this was in, around the same period in response to the zanj rebellion right So he also said that we state that Allah did not cause us to be black to punish us rather the environment has impacted us that's what he says right and uh when people started to try and justify the curse of ham and started to say that oh the descendants are now cursed to be in slavery forever 
like people just didn't accept that like a lot of these different scholars didn't accept that right they've also in these books like there's an entire type of islamic literature that came from this period that came towards venerating black people in islamic history obviously especially with bilal radiallahu anhu right there's also uh the negus of abyssinia and how he accepted the companions um, in their journey when they had the first hijra or the first migration to escape persecution that was happening in Makkah, right? Ibn al-Jawz has already been mentioned over here. We've already looked at him. Another one is also al-Suyuti. Like Suyuti also clearly stated that this idea of black people getting their skin tone uh, because Ham ibn Nuh looked at uh, Nuh's private parts or whatever and then turned black or his descendants were cursed or any type of variation of that story, right? rejects it totally and talks of, obviously rejects the, the notion of racism, right? Another scholar, right, if it were to go in here, this is from the Ottoman period, they were actually coming at him for his skin color and saying that, oh, you know, you shouldn't really be in your position, right, because you're a black man, right? And they essentially, he, he refutes this point candidly. The same thing for another major scholar from West Africa, a West, this is an African scholar, Ahmed Baba as well, right? So this is clearly, I mean, if you, if you see all of these different scholars, not just from, yeah, we have some from Basra, we have some from Egypt, we have some from uh, Constantinople, we have some from Timbuktu or the Maghreb as well, because he ended up going and writing his books in the Maghreb when the Songhai Empire was attacked or the Mali Empire, I can't remember which one, right? But you have so many scholars that have refuted this. So if you're asking me specifically, if you're listening to this, uh, and you're a black person who's interested or you want, you've converted to Islam and you're like worried about the racism. Like I always just tell people this, like the scholarship is on your side and the scripture will always be on your side, right? And that's just something that we have to deal with as Muslims. Just like we were trying to navigate anti-blackness in the non-Muslim world. And even in the absence of Islam, we still have to anti, uh, like navigate that anti-blackness. We have to do the same thing, unfortunately, within um, our religious circles. And the scriptures and the scholars are on our side and no one can disagree with that. That's a great point. Um, just going back to your point about um, the Mu'tazili scholar, I'm reading this book right now called uh, Reopening Mus Muslim Minds by Mustafa Akiol, and it's given me an, a newfound respect for uh, the Mu'tazilites because um, for the most part, uh, the, the Umayyads were hardcore in determinism, and um, the, the, the Mu'tazili um, thought uh, when, the, when the Umayyads were, were uh, destroyed by the Abbasids, took the forefront. And we saw a lot of, um, lack of a better term, quote-unquote, liberal values come forth from them because they were mostly arguing from reason, whereas the, um, um, whereas the Umayyads were, like the, the condition they're in, because of their deterministic worldview, they wouldn't really take the initiative to change. But um, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out that regardless of Ash'ari, Athiri, Mu'tazili, anything, the, the, the scholarship for the most part has been against uh, bigotry or against racism or against any of these un-Islamic views. Yeah, that's the central main point. Uh, like, this is people from all sects, by the way. And this is also perhaps proof and kind of proof why Islam also was able to why it was so easily uh, easy for people to accept as well because it's it's race blind, right? 
in terms of, yes, Islam itself does not see color, right? Allah does not see your color on the day of judgment and say that, oh, I'm going to judge you based on this. Right? It's by your piety and your good deeds, that's it, right? But when we're looking at the Muslims, that's obviously a different story. But in terms of scholarship, yeah, this is something we can easily refute. And I think as black Muslims, you really need to like go to these texts that we've also just mentioned and just like have a quick read of just, you know, the basic arguments that scholars have talked about. And I think these are things, if anything, we need to popularize and to let people know that the argument about racism in Islam, right, or like uh, racism as a whole, should not stop at Bilal ibn Rabah. People need to know, like, you know, the discussions that have happened. They need to know the history and how Islam responded to that. Because you're really diluting, obviously, the struggles of Black Muslims throughout Muslim history. But yeah, guys, I think that's going to wrap it up for the podcast just because of time. Uh, but if you just have any, like, you know, last things that you wanted to say, we'll start with Ismail. And then, obviously, uh, we'll go to Mustafa, then Samantha, and then we'll close off with today. Um, well, there was, like, three things I think I want to say. Uh, first, I want to go back to your point about um, how the Arabs didn't just enslave Black people. It wasn't, like, a thing of just Black people. Because um, the Arab slave trade, if, like, depending on who you ask, it could you could trace it back to even pre-Islamic days. So even in those days, like we have Sahaba, like uh, Suhaib Rumi, Rahimahullah, or Radhiallahu He was uh, Roman, he was from the Byzantine Empire. He was a European person. Or we have Salman al-Farisi, who's Persian. They were made slaves before Islam came to Arabia. So it wasn't a thing of, and even honestly, they Arabs enslaved other Arabs, like other Arab tribes, especially from Yemen. So I just wanted to give that as a supporting point for what you were saying. And like you were saying as well, even during Islam or when Islam came, like uh, a lot of the Arabs and slave people in Eastern Europe and things like that. So that was one point I wanted to bring up. Uh, the second thing was about generally the whole, uh, you know, you have to be Arab to be a Muslim. What I would ask them is, okay, what part of Islam is Arab culture? Like what, do you know what Arab culture is? And what part of Arab culture is forced upon you in Islam? Like, what is it? <laughs> like, they'll say something like, oh, you gotta grow a beard. Is that part of Arab culture? No. In fact, um, the Arabs did the exact opposite. <laughs> the, the, the whole reason the Prophet Muhammad recommended to grow your beard is to be different from the other people in Arabia. <laughs> and that was the whole point. So, I mean, it's when, you, when they say this, it shows that they don't really have an understanding of Islam or what Arab culture is. Like Arab culture is like wearing a shimar and a thobe and eating a specific type of food. Like Islam doesn't say you got, doesn't say you got to eat hummus. And that's the only food you can eat. You know what I mean? So... And in Islamic law, by the way, something called orf, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but that's taken into consideration. So that's basically the culture or customs of the people in that area. So certain things in Islam or certain laws are based on like the culture of the people there. It's not just oh, what Arab culture says, it's what the culture of the people there in that region are accustomed to. Um, as for the third thing, I honestly forgot it. So yeah, you guys can just continue. Yeah, Mustafa, you can go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, I'd like to say that um, I think Muslims for the most part, um, we've lost the universalism that, that made us into a, a great civilization um, uh, historically. We've, we've lost, um, the, the stuff we now associate with Western enlightenment, freedom, tolerance, uh, science, 
And what's taken its place is religious dogma. And I think in order to, um, to revive uh, these values that we've lost, we have to combat this dogma. And, and once we do combat the dogma, we'll see things like human rights, equality for women, anti-racism be, be brought to the forefront. But um, that's just my opinion. Um, Samantha? Yeah, I think like Adnan said, we definitely don't want to discourage people who are thinking about becoming Muslim or who are new Muslims, that this is a common occurrence. Um, I mean, everyone's experience is different. Someone who it, it lives in a different country may have a different experience than I do. But my personal experience is the discrimination I have faced mainly as a, you know, a Black individual is mainly from people who are not Muslim. Um, the majority of the discrimination I have faced is just for being a Muslim and being a hijabi Muslim because, of course, after 9-11, everyone started to look at us differently and I'm, my, you know, foreigner status is, is always called into question because when they see you with hijab, it automatically means that you're not American. But um, there are problems in every single society, whether you're Muslim or not, there's going to be racism, there's going to be anti-Blackness because that exists in every single society everywhere. Um, and I would say for the most part, I've had an, an amazing experience with Arab Muslims, with Desi Muslims, with you know groups that may be pushing racism, but everyone's experience is different. But from the most part, if, if a person is truly practicing Islam, like Mustafa said, to the, to the way that Allah brought it down to us, then they're going to like treat you as your brother, like what we're supposed to be treating each other, like brothers and sisters, not based on the fact that you're from a different culture, from a different nation. And truly, I feel like Allah tests us in like the littlest of ways. And for those of us who are looking at people differently based on their culture and or their race, you're failing one of the basic, you know, tests that Allah like gave us. And that test is to treat people who are different than you as, as like you would want to be treated. And, you know, I just think that like, we really need to be into like looking at ourselves, looking at our hearts and understanding that these things are like from the devil, you know, I mean, Shaitan himself didn't want to, you know, bow down to Adam or accept Adam. And that's a form of racism or discrimination in itself. Like if we're having these sort of like devilish ideas and thoughts in our heart about someone who looks different than us or who is you know complete who may even speak a different language something like that you're you're following what shaitan would want you to do and not what allah and like the prophet taught us so we really even if we are working to dismantle systems of racism we still need to stop and look at our own biases and our own like you know just like negative things in our heart because truly that's what Islam wants us to do is to reflect, to stop and think like we all sin and we need to work on stopping our sins and, you know, becoming a better people and becoming a better society because people who are not Muslim already look at us crazy and think of us as terrorists. We don't need to be fighting each other when we already have to fight Islamophobia. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, Chad Bourne has come through. I think um, I'll just mention a couple of things. 
obviously to every Muslim, like, yeah, I think we just have to constantly remind us of what our tradition teaches, teaches us. We need to come back to the tradition. We need to look back into the scholarship. We need to look at the characters of, first of all, the prophets, peace be upon them all, and their companions. May Allah be pleased with all of them. And the, you know, the, the earlier generations that were like living quite close to them. And essentially, we need to model that. And we need to not just model it, but we need to constantly critique ourselves and to realize that, you know, we will only view ourselves, we will only ever view ourselves, right, from our perspective, unless someone tells us otherwise. So this is my message to other Muslims, specifically non-Black Muslims. As I mentioned in that survey, you know, almost around 80%, almost 80 percent of people in that survey out of the 104 feel gaslit when they talk about Black issues within the Muslim community. And a lot of the times I see people make these posts and then people just hop on the bandwagon, oh, you know, BLM was fake, da, 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 all this stuff, right? I think you just need to look deep into your hearts, right? And interrogate it. And I tell everyone this, like everyone has bias. And if you're a non-Black Muslim, this may be a hard pill to swallow, but yes, you have racial bias and it is subconscious. Just like, for example, yes, even Black people have sub, like, subconscious anti-Black, uh, you know, assumptions that we've adopted because of, for example, you know, this colonial, project of telling people, for example, black people to hate their hair, tell black girls to straighten their hair, or that, you know, Afros are dirty, all these different things, right? We need to look into uh, ourselves and we need to ask people, right? We need to listen, right? And we need to combat this racial bias, right? And that's the one thing that I'll, the, one of the most important things that I'll also leave you with. Uh, but also just in general, just to the people, to the non-Muslims who are also listening and like, you know, they're listening, find out about like Islam and everything like that. Like, please, when you're researching the tradition, actually go to reliable sources <laughs> and don't be so quick to take Wikipedia or Wiki Islam as something that you can rely on. <clears throat> These are far more nuanced issues. And, you know, you have to really look deep and actually see the reality for what it is. So my conclusion, I'm sure it is everyone else's conclusion here. And I would argue every reasonable person should come to this conclusion that Islam does not support, endorse, or even uh, like, you know, like allow racism in any way, shape or form. And the scholarship says that, the hadith say that, the Quran says that, and all the previous scriptures before that have affirmed that on a very firm basis. And with that, I'd like to close the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, would anyone like to actually leave their social media tags? Uh, we can start with Ismail and then we can go around. Okay, like, so mine's is uh, Sheikh J, wait. Sheikh James Ibn Harden on TikTok. Uh, um, yeah, that's my main thing. That's, everything else is just like personal stuff, but that's where I post most of my content about Islam and, you know, just uh, talking about comparative religion, stuff like that. So if you want to check that out, feel free. Mustafa? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter at Esoteric Bullets. Um, I, I currently have a, a thread up pinned on my page of um, the, the far-right infiltration of Muslim da'wah. Uh, but I mostly tweet about anti-imperialism, um, uh, Muslim, Muslim Twitter, just standard stuff. Samantha? Yeah, most of my content is like um, social justice stuff 
like I should be posting more about Islam, but my TikTok is ASMR. So ASMR Habibti, H-A-B-E-E-B-T-I on TikTok. Awesome. And you guys already know where to follow me, Pariah Nation on Instagram and on TikTok as well. Go to my YouTube channel. We just dropped a new YouTube video on the Benin bronzes and uh, essentially like the, the hundreds of thousands of African artifacts that are in European museums and why we should be able to get them back. Thanks once again for everyone. Thanks again to the guests for being here and I'll see you guys in the next episode.